Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, just want to make sure that you're following along with the Lincoln Project on all of our coverage regarding the January 6th committee hearings. Testimony has been explosive. The evidence has been damning against Donald Trump and his attempt to steal the 2020 election. I hope you'll follow us and understand just how close we were to losing it all. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Tim Miller, writer for The Bulwark, host of Not My Party on Snapchat, and political analyst for MSNBC. Prior to his time at The Bulwark, he was political director for Republican Voters Against Trump, communications director for the Jeb 2016 presidential campaign, and spokesman for the Republican National Committee. Tim has just released his new book, a New York Times bestseller, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell which is available wherever fine books are sold. Today is coming to us from the one, the only, Oakland, California. Tim, welcome. Reed, I'm just so happy to be with you. Thank you for having me. And I do have to start here. This is the first interview I've done since I was officially a New York Times bestseller. I'm so excited about it. Well, I'm going to take credit for it then. Yeah, you should. You should. With the Lincoln Project audience, I have two parts here. You know, we all have bloodlust here at the Lincoln Project podcast, I think, to a certain degree. And so we have a little bit of schadenfreude for you, but then a little bit of a stretch goal. The schadenfreude is my book was released the same day as Christy Nome's book. She did not make the New York Times bestseller list. The Corey Lewandowski client, you just couldn't quite get across the finish line. Is that the word we're using now, client? <laughs> so that's the good news. That's Sean Freud. The bad news is I was beaten out. I was bested by Pete Hedgeseth, the ninth string Fox and Friends host with the Jose Bank suits. And like, you know, you can smell his bad hair jelly through the TV. He's a living embodiment of Axe Body Spray grown up. Exactly. The Axe Body Spray turned human. And we just can't allow that. <laughs> Look, Tim, it's not even about you. It's not even about this you. Is not about it's really me. about freedom in America. Exactly. Thank you, Reed. Thank you. This is about competition and freedom and just not letting the anthropomorphized Axe Body Spray defeat the forces of righteousness and good and democracy one more time. That is my first request to the great and good people of the Lincoln Project podcast. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Christy Nome, and then there was Kellyanne Conway, there was Megan McCain, Chris Christie, all of these people, Tim, who've written these books. I think they have like a combined, maybe like 85,000 copies sold. That's generous, I think. All right, let's call it 50,000 copies sold. But the Pete Hegseths of the world, it's weird that having that Fox News base or foundation, right? Like the true believers gobble those things up. Like as soon as they come out, whether or not it's Bill O'Reilly or any of them. Well, the entertainment class. And I do think that there is a parallel to going to what's happening in politics in the Republican side. I mean, the Republican base is telling people what they want, whether it's with candidates or whether it's with their book sales or you know, whether it's their small dollar donations. And they are drawn to the WWE entertainment conspiracy side of the party. They don't want Chris Christie trying to do the do si -do where he sucks up to Trump on the one hand and then tries to feed them a bowl of spinach on the other hand. Like, that isn't what people are interested in. It's why J.D. Vance went from being a best-selling author that, you know, kind of hobnobbed with the elites to just being this, like, grotesque, culture-warring, conspiracy monger. Because that's what worked. That's what people wanted. You saw in the primaries. That's why Dave McCormick, my friend Dave McCormick, didn't win in Pennsylvania. This is not what the Republican voters want. They're telling us over and over again that they want the show, the performance, the lib owning, the conspiracy mongering. And it's reflected in both the politics and in kind of the media ratings. Well, I could tell you that a family member was visiting and uh, brought a copy of Chris Christie's book with them and left it As a at troll. my home. I don't know. That might have been. 
but it is now the, I don't want to call it the proud property, but it is now the property of the Park City Public Library. So <laughs> without the spine being cracked, it went Generous to, of you to give it to well, the library. You know, I don't want people to say I didn't do anything. <laughs> so let's talk about the book, why we did it, because I made a mistake. The first thing I did was I started reading it without actually reading the title or understanding what the title meant. So I was like, what's going on here? And then I reread the title, Tim, because I'm a smart guy. At least I think I am. And you said it's a travelogue. And once you put it in that context as a journey, not as an examination, not as some sort of highbrow dissection of conservatives in America over the last 40 years, like it very much fits. It makes a lot of sense. And I think that the journey is so important here because you and I came from different places in politics, but we ended up in similar space, which is I grew up in the Republican Party, right? I grew up in D.C. I left. I came back to work for George W. Bush, left again, came back to work for John McCain on the same 2007 campaign that you were on. We both unceremoniously left. But then like I took off, like I went back to California and still to this day have no desire ever to darken the Beltway's door, but for to see my parents and, you know, for a couple of days on, you know, for work. And so you were, you know, I'll call it the belly of the beast to oversimplify it. So let's talk about it. Why now? Why the candor? What are you hoping folks will take away from your journey in this? For different readers, I want different things, obviously. I hope some of my former colleagues that are reading this, and I know they are, I've heard from them. If I can just, you know, spark 10 pangs of conscience, I'd take that as a win. I don't have any disillusions that this book is going to change the entire culture of Washington, but I hope at least it makes some of my friends think about the choices they made and the stories that they're telling themselves. And I hope that the readers, you know, if they're on the left, kind of get some insight into the human choices that are leading people to go along with Trumpism. It's easy to demonize. There are plenty of sociopaths and bigots and awful people in Republican politics, no doubt. But those people were necessary but not sufficient for the madness that we've seen, right? For Trump to work, he needed the collaborators too, the people who knew better, you know, for him to get as far as he did in almost tearing down our democracy. So what motivated those people? I want to provide an insight into that for readers. Maybe some of it's just for entertainment purposes. For others, it might be a way to glean some ways to reach people that they know know better who have succumbed to this stuff. And lastly, I think that if it really achieves the goal that I want it to as a book, I want it to have some universal themes. Republican politics is not the only place in our society where people tell themselves comforting stories to go along with evil shit. I mean, that's a human nature. It's a human trait. And so hopefully there might be some reflection and lessons. I've had people who message me and say, I'm thinking about quitting my job. They're not even in Republican politics, but they're like, this is making me reflect on how I've been complicit in things that I, I don't feel good about. So that was the goal. You know, there have already been so many books about why all these guys are terrible. A couple of your colleagues have written those books. There have been some really good history books on this, Stu. I didn't want to, you know, rewrite It Was All a Lie, which is a fantastic book that is really a, a kind of a history of the Republican Party and that gets at where this stemmed from. You know, I'm not a historian. What I am is I'm a person that knows the people who were complicit. I know the enablers. I know the corroborators because I was in the belly of the beast, like you said. And so I wanted to do basically a psychological examination of them and of myself and help try to explain how people who know better go along with bad things. So as you go through, you have actual conversations with dear friends of yours, long-term friends of yours, people who are more acquaintances. These are people who, I guess, in your capacity as an author are speaking on the record, but it's interesting that even though you came from the same place, like they still go off the record, right? Interesting right. <laughs> when they need to. So that's, that's an interesting thing. It is so weird actually being on the other side of the table on that front read. I'm, I'm like, you're going off the record with me right now? I get, okay, I guess I'm a journalist now. I forgot about that. But look, I've had those same conversations. I remember in the summer of 2016, one of my dearest friends, a guy, frankly, Tim, I haven't spoken to in probably two and a half years at this point. Trump was the nominee. He'd just given, you know, that paranoid insane speech at the convention. I said, you're really going to go along with this guy? And he goes, he's the head of the party. And I'm like, but you know better. And he's like, he's the head of the party. This person goes on to have a very senior role in the administration. And it was just as you walk through the different categories of people. And I thought the fact that like there were what, six or seven different categories, but that there were blending between them, I think was a very important nuance here because it went from I'm a party guy, too. I'm in this senior role. And if it's not me, God knows what will happen. 
But in the end, both he and another dear friend of mine, another person, unfortunately, to whom I haven't spoken in several years, it morphs very quickly to they can't do it without me. They shouldn't do it without me. I'm here, you know, the committee to protect democracy or whatever, right? Committee to save America. <laughs> committee to save America, right. You get wrapped up in the day-to-day, -day, and then the abnormal becomes normal, and then the rationalization process even speeds up. Yeah, and a bunker mode sets in. I mean, and I ticked through, and, and we could talk about some of them and the examples, but just at the top of the line, I went and interviewed these people because I was like, you think you know, right? Like, I think I know. And there's some obvious ones, right? Like some people do it for the money, of course, right? But what about the people who kind of have these complex mental gymnastics that they do to get there? Like, what are the things that they tell themselves? And it was over and over again, it was the left is evil demonization. It was what you just said. They need people like me in here, you know, because if I'm not here, worse people will be there. It's the team player. It's like, hey, this is my team. I'm a Republican. I go to Republican bars. I have Republican friends. You know, I named my dog uh, Jack Kemp or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've got, I've got elephant tchotchkes. Like, I, how am I supposed to leave my team, right? There's this game aspect of it. I'm an operative. What do you want from me? It's not my job to save the country. I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an ad man or I'm a mailman or I'm a pollster. And it's just, this is my job. Look, I've got employees, Tim. What do you want me to do about my employees? And I'm like, dude, you have 400 employees six houses you can leave any fucking time you want yeah or you can start doing polling for other stuff do polling for corporate america that might not be the lord's work but listen the country needs to know what kind of mayonnaise it wants right yeah exactly somebody's got to do that so anyway so you go through this and some people you know are one category clear and it's just this one thing that they've convinced themselves of and they just dig in on that point and others of them, they switch. They kind of move through all these different things because, you know, it's like the whack-a-mole. The fact that they're the essential man all of a sudden like becomes pretty clear that they're not when Trump's latest outrage, whatever it is, happens. So then they come up with a different justification. And it was just really interesting having these conversations. Some of them were on the record, like you said, a bunch were on background. And it was horrifying and angering and dispiriting, but it starts to come into focus about why these folks do what they do. And, and I do feel like when you see it all together in the book, I hope so at least, they all seem ridiculous, you know, in the end. It's like, okay, well, I, I can see how you would, you would say that, but it's easy to knock this stuff down, especially in the face of somebody who is so manifestly evil and incompetent, you know, who left Washington with blood on his hands, literally, and blood on the side of the Capitol. And that's the one thing too, and I will admit to being guilty of this when I lived there, is that you note something, which is that people that live and work in politics in Washington, D.C., to a person, Tim, believe that if they weren't in that job, whether or not it was Trump or not, the world would spin off its axis. When I worked in D.C. in the first term of George W. Bush, I don't know how many weddings I missed, how many trips I missed, all that, because I said, well, I can't leave, because if I leave, what'll happen? Right. And if I could go back and get all of those experiences back that would be far more valuable to me now, than deciding which five people are going to go to frickin' Cedar Rapids two weeks from now, like, I would take them all in a heartbeat. This is, I think, what I hope is interesting to people who are not of Washington at all. God love y'all. Because I think that's hard for people to wrap their head around. Like, these guys are so self-important that they feel like the country is relying on them. But that is just, when you walk into the White House every day, you walk into those halls, and then it has an effect on you. It's this West Wing effect. And people start to feel like they're the essential man or woman. And then in Trump's White House, you have the added element of the one thing that they're right about, their argument isn't right, but the one thing that they're right about is it was madness in there. And if they did quit, a stupider person was going to replace them or a more racist person. I mean, we all saw it. We all saw just the degradation of the people around Trump. And so, you know, the one chapter that I found the most interesting was this Alyssa Farah, who she stays all the way till the end. And she bails before January 6th, and she's stuck with bailing. And so she doesn't deserve angel wings, but it's interesting. It's like, what was it about you that made you stay and made you leave? I'm in her living room, and we're kind of going back and forth on this. It's getting a little heated. And she starts listing off all the things that she, behind the scenes, she did that kept things from being worse. You know, she's like, well, Trump wanted to do the Insurrection Act, and he wanted to fire Esper two times, and he wanted to kill Stars and Stripes magazine, and he wanted to put Scott Atlas in charge of the pandemic. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, Alyssa, you're describing a madman. You're describing an insane person. Like, if I was there, I would think that I would want to walk out of the White House and go down to the lawn in front of all the banks of cameras and scream in front of the cameras and be like, you guys have no idea how mad, how insane this person is. Like, listen to all the things that he's trying to do. And yet their contortions 
was to say, well, this doesn't mean that I need to speak out. This means that I'm even more needed. And that's a human, I think, impulse. It's clearly wrong, and it caused a lot of damage. But that was absolutely widespread and so crazy, so widespread in D.C., that it, even the person who like posts on Facebook thought that they were the indispensable person. I mean, it goes, it went all the way from the National Security Advisor down to people with completely meaningless, utterly replaceable jobs. But, you know, the Farah portion to me, I think, was both most interesting and made me pause the most, Tim, because to me, and maybe it's because I lived in California for so long, so, you know, I was detached both literally and physically from most Republican politics. So Farah was a tough one for me because of a couple of things. One is because of the way that you describe the defense of it. Secondly, though, like, okay, you left, you had a moment of conscience. But also, like, it seems like, you know, in this bid for normalcy, the willingness to quit and then say, like, there were things there that I didn't like now allows you to be accepted fully back into the political fold and the media fold because she is now a paid contributor to CNN, I think. And so to me, it's like, wait, 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 wait. You knew what was going on. You chose, to your point, not to say anything. And now you are being rewarded for doing something that any other rational human being should have done. Now, in all candor, Tim, she has blocked me on Twitter because I think I've taken her to task a few times (laughs) for things like you don't get to live on a moral mountain about Trumpism if you spend four years in the goddamn place. I'm sorry. No doubt. And I understand your point on Alyssa. I do. I agreed with you, actually, before I met her. And I was very skeptical and it seemed very cynical, the whole thing. And sure, is there a cynical element of it? Is there a careerist element of it? Of course, she would admit that. She did admit that to me. But here's where I draw the line. This is not to excuse her, but it's to say, unlike all of these other assholes, like Bill Barr and Mike Pence and on down the line, she has fully cooperated with the committee. She said that she will oppose Donald Trump in 2024, no matter what. There's no weasel talk about how, oh, what if the Democrats nominate Bernie or Kamala's so scary or all this, you know, or I'm a Republican, I'm worried about the woke left. So again, I think that there are variations of gray. And I think that it's interesting as just a character study. How does someone do it? How does someone do what Cassidy did? I mean, they went in so long, they saw it for what it was, they justified it. It was wrong what they justified. They should feel guilty about it. They should maybe feel a bit of shame about it. But how were they broken free? I think that that was an important part of the book to find a character that fit that because we need to break more people free. I mean, the whole point of this is how can we, you know, bring more people into the pro-democracy coalition? Doesn't mean they need to be on Mount Rushmore, but they need to be broken free. And so I thought she was an interesting case study to that end. And I think that this is really a message for all of our friends who consider themselves in the pro-democracy movement, which is, and myself included, maybe most of all, Tim, which is, If you are expecting purity from the people with whom you must lock arms in this fight, you will be disappointed and you will lose. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing some of that stuff bubble up, you know, as we see like Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney being lauded by Americans across the political spectrum for the things they're doing and the things they're facing because of the actions they've taken. And now you see some folks on the left who are like, but they're bad because of this, but they're bad because of that. Now. There might be some things that I disagree with Liz and Kinzinger because I think they are, frankly, more conservative than I am. But that's neither here nor there. But like when the time came, they have been doing the thing they need to do. And it's like if you guys want to fight amongst ourselves, then it will all go down around us. And then we can all argue about who was right and who was wrong. It's like we're standing in Stalag 17. And this is a two-way street, right? Some of the people who come from our background do this with AOC or, you know, the squad. And they're like, they can't, oh, this is, that's too far. And I, you know, I disagree with them on some stuff on progressive issues. But, you know, I loved the tweet. There was a tweet during the election that was like, the anti-Trump, the pro-Joe Biden coalition goes all the way from Angela Davis to Bill Kristol. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's what's needed. This is what is needed to win. And so, look, you have to have red lines. I'm not saying that. And for me, that red line is, you have to be clear that you will oppose Trump and Trumpism no matter what going forward and, and that you're with us on this. I mean, it's the weasel world guys. You know, Bill Barr, I'm going to get one sixty minutes interview to help me sell my book. But like when push comes to shove, you know, he's still on the red team like that is bullshit. 
and I call out those people very harshly in the book as really, honestly, they're the biggest villains as far as I'm concerned. Like the people who know better, who see Trump for what he is, but still enable him and still allow him to continue. I find those people to be bigger villains than the Bannons. The difference is they are who they are and they are who they've been. Exactly. So anyway, so I think as long as you come to our side on that, I'm going to make some allowances while also being honest. And, and the book tries to be as honest as possible about their motivations. So I wrote something for The Bulwark where you write, I oh gosh, it must have been 2020 sometime. And it was the same kind of thing, like asking our old friends and colleagues, like, how far are you going to go? What are you willing to do? And then we wrote an op-ed that we dropped in October of 20. I think it was in the Post saying, you know, right before the election, like this guy, if he loses, isn't going quietly. And are you going to cross the river? And they all fucking crossed the river, Tim. They all crossed the river. Now, some of them jumped back out on January 6th. There's one or two like Alyssa Farah who were like, wait, 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 I'm done. But far more of them either actively, as you note, with a dear old friend of yours in the book or passively sat by and said, like, I think it's a Josh Holmes, right? Like, what could it hurt? And, you know, humor him for a while. It'll all go away. That has to be Josh Holmes' own background, right? It just reflects his ethos so much. Like, what's the problem with humoring him for a little while? And this, I think, is really what I try to get into is the mindset of these people. Because the people that are the most important to understand and to defeat and hopefully persuade, but if you can't persuade, defeat, are the ones who, on January 6th, you're Josh Holmes, you're Lindsey Grahams, you're Kevin McCarthy's, the people who were in Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns' book saying the right thing for two days. You know, Lindsey Graham in the book says, I think, couldn't the country unite around Joe Biden? <laughs> I mean, he's, that's what he's literally saying on January 7th. These people saw clearly the threat. They saw the choice clearly. They were scared for their lives. And yet, I had said on the Bulwark podcast that by Valentine's Day, they would all be back in the fold. And they were all back in the fold even sooner than that. They were all back in the fold before January. And it's because the fact that the Capitol was stormed was not actually, in the end, a reason for them to break from Trump. It was more proof of his power and more proof that if they wanted to be in the mix, if they wanted to have their careers continue, if they wanted to keep making money, that they were going to need to continue to be in service to this mob. And that is, I think, the most dangerous element of all of this. Those are the evil ones. Those are the people that we need to either pry off or defeat if we're going to save this democracy going forward. Well, that was one other thing. I just want to stay on Holmes for a second. First, you know, if you have to have a podcast called Ruthless, it's probably not. That's one. Second is I was fascinated that I don't know the context of the communication, but, you know, you'd called him out for, you know, his firm made $13 million off the Sheldon Adelson pro-Trump pack, you know, and so he's a toll booth attendant. But then he's like, I'm going to get you. Like, you're going to get me? What have <laughs> you sacrificed, Josh, in all of this? The answer is zero. So do you think you're the worst of the people we have to deal with on a daily basis? Like, you don't even make the goddamn list. It was the most hilarious DM. And basically what was behind this was Josh was trying to do rehab. You know, this is for people who don't know, the Mitch McConnell's top advisor has this stupid ruthless podcast where, you know, him and some anonymous online troll, like, pretend like they're tough and the danced on the grave of Ruth Ginsburg is the name of the podcast. It's all just really sick, debased stuff. But he tried to, you know, whitewash himself. He thought maybe Trump was going to disappear in January and that he could go back to being one of the quote unquote good Republicans. And he's doing all these tweets to this effect. And so I just sent a screenshot of how much money he made off Trump. And I was like, you don't get to do this. You don't get to pretend like you're one of the good ones now after you're building beach houses on the back of a pro Donald Trump super PAC largesse. Like you are complicit. You are the reason why the Capitol was stormed in the first place, because you knew better and you still we're doing everything you could to enrich yourself and to help this guy. So anyway, he DMs me and he was like, and this is, I don't know if you mentioned you guys by name, but you know, he, the subtext was like, I didn't think you were like one of those Lincoln Project guys who call people out. Like, I thought you understood the game. I thought you got it. I thought you got it. And he's like, I'm going to fucking ruin you. I'm going to ruin you. And then he blocks me and I'm just laughing. I'm going, number one, I know I'm not in this game anymore, pal. I thought that would be clear to you for six years. But I thought that that's hilarious about the culture of D.C. I and mean, it's dark, but hilarious about the culture of D.C. That like the bad thing to do is to call someone out for being complicit in evil, not for being complicit in evil. Right. Like the rules of Omerita are you're the bad one if you call someone out for doing something immoral. And I did just get a kick out of this. Just this notion that it's like, I'm sorry, brother, you don't have any power over me. I'm not looking for an NRSC 
communications contract anymore. I'm like, you might be able to play this bully ball with other DC flunkies who are looking for their next consulting fee. That ain't me anymore. So you got no power over me. And I just thought that the whole exchange was very revealing as to the mindset of the people inside the Beltway culture who found themselves in service to this person that they obviously knew was dangerous and immoral. Right. Well, and it always seems to come down to proximity to power and the availability of cash. Those two things seem to be the intersection, which, look, that's not new. This is not new to human history, but we're living through this part of it. For sure. And the proximity to power thing, I think, you know, has always been true, but it is unique, I think, to this DC culture, just how addicted people are to it. And I think that sometimes people on the outside think, oh, you know, what drives these people is that they want power. And some people want that. I think Elise, we could talk about Elise if you want, she wants power. But most people in DC, power comes with responsibility. They don't want responsibility. They just want to be in the golf cart next to Trump, like Lindsey Graham. They just want to be sitting in a meeting so they can go back and tell their friends about this thing that they heard Donald Trump say behind the scenes or Kellyanne Conway or whatever. Feel famous, just kind of feel important. Be in the room where it happened, as they said in Hamilton. That is the D.C. thing that I think is really unique. You would think that that wouldn't be so powerful. I think that was the thing that was surprising to me. I understand why people like that being in proximity to power, like being able to tell their friends that they were in the Oval when a discussion was happening. But you would think that the rush from that wouldn't be so great that you'd be willing to go along with this unconscionable, bigot, narcissist. But it turns out, yeah, actually, that people's desire for the access was that strong. I, to me, that kind of blew me away. Well, let me just give you a sense about the power. And look, I was an advanced man at the White House, as, as the listeners have heard far too many times, which is one step above pond scum in the political world. But I did have a desk at the White House, although I was rarely ever there. But, Tim, when you're in your suit, right, and this is 20 years ago, but it, it probably works today. You're in your suit. You're in your wingtips. You've got your tie on. You've got your pass on. You've got your pin on. And you step out of that gate from West Exec on to Pennsylvania Avenue, and all the tourists are there, and they're staring at you. And you know why they're staring at you. One, they want to figure out if they know who you are, but two, that person works at the White House. That person works in that building. They have no idea who I am, who we are, what is it we do, but like to them, that's a big deal, right? And I remember that feeling. I remember that feeling. Yeah, and here's the thing. When it goes away, it is like a drug addiction. You know, it's like withdrawals. And um, I'm just pulling this up here because Chris Christie did an interview where he accidentally kind of admitted this. He was doing this interview where he was trying to explain his actions. And, and, he, and he says this. He said, he said he was talking to someone else in politics. And he said, look, one of the things you need to know is the music stops. Like someone else comes in and you wake up the next morning. If you're out of the mix, everything's gone. The cameras are gone. The phone call stops and the music stops. And you got to figure out what do I do to fill that hole? And like, the fact that he wasn't self-aware enough to realize just how pathetic that sounds, that uh, he would go along with Donald Trump just because he had this empty hole inside of him when he left the governor's office and the music stopped, the attention stopped. It was just an unintentional example of showing just how sad these guys are and how much they need this validation and how much that is driving this power of Trump even more than the ideological elements that mostly drive like the voters that are pushing Trump through the extreme anti-abortion or anti-immigrant stuff that drive the voters. And I remember we were on the John McCain, a one version of the 2007 John McCain for president effort together, although we didn't know each other and we weren't in the same place. But I remember I think we left probably the same day sometime just about now, however many years ago. And I moved back to California. I get a gig with a consulting firm in California and no one shows up until like 8.30 or 9. And then it's like 30 to 45 minutes of coffee. And then Tim, everybody's gone by like 5.30. And I'm like, what do I do now? And I'm like, oh, this is life. <laughs> what, what happens with the rest of my night? Yeah, like, oh, this is life. That's what this is. This is now the opportunity to go do something you'd enjoy doing, <laughs> right? As opposed to like, you know, working on an op-ed or going through a goddamn spreadsheet until 11 o'clock at night because you think that's what you need to do because you think other people care. Yeah, and this speaks to, Reed, another thing that I have regrets on. And I look back, and Stuart gets into this a little bit in his book, but because you become so addicted to the rush and to the game of it and to the competition and to the sport, like the policy outcomes in this culture 
becomes secondary, tertiary, or even unconsidered because you're not really thinking about it. And we're also, I'm going to just admit this, I, again, I feel guilty about this. We're also privileged, right? That the policies like aren't really affecting us, right? Like, you know, a tax cut, maybe your taxes go up or down a little bit, but none of these policies are actually harming people in the real world, you know, unless you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in a mass shooting, right? Like they're not really affecting people in the Beltway consultant class the way they're affecting real people who are being harmed by some of these policies. So you don't think about it and you, you just become addicted to the winning and this disconnect grows between the voters and the people in Washington. And we thought we were the you know, sophisticated ones. <laughs> like, I'm not worried about these like little mingling policy things. I'm just trying to win a race and beat the other guys and come up with smart tactics and be clever. And the reality was the opposite. It was like the voters actually were the ones who understood what politics was actually about. And I think that this disconnect was a big reason that Trump rose. The voters had legitimate concerns about the war in Iraq. They had legitimate concerns about their communities being hollowed out. They had also some bigoted concerns about immigration, but they had also legitimate concerns and we weren't serving them at all because we just wanted that next fix and that next rush of the oppo hit or the whatever, the thing that you got the win most the day. You got to win the day. Win the day, win the hour. I was talking to somebody, I think it might've been like a 4th of July picnic and they were asking me about Roe v. Wade and all of this stuff. And I don't know if you experienced this, Tim, but like when I worked in campaigns, right, not the campaigns we're in now, but like on an, you know, a campaign for a candidate, I don't think I ever gave one second's thought to something that someone at the Heritage Foundation was doing. I don't think I gave one second's thought to something that was happening at the Federalist Society. I don't know if that's blissful ignorance, if it's ignorant ignorance, if it was just like, well, to your point, like we're the operative class, we have a job to do, which is to win. You people govern, you're the poindexters, right? You're the nerds. But the truth is, is that even in Republican politics, this is going to sound like an excuse and I don't want it to. You could have all of this work going on in movement conservative circles, I guess, maybe ultra conservative circles and be unaware of it because you're focused on the campaign or your candidate or to your point, like winning the day. But now here we are, you know, like, how do we get to Roe v. Wade? It didn't happen overnight. It took 40 freaking years. How do we get to a New York gun law getting overturned? It took 35 or 40 years of conservative legal scholars, you know, maybe that's in air quotes, maybe it's not, coming up with all of this different stuff that ultimately like an Antonin Scalia could lean back on. And so like sometimes you have to explain to our friends in the pro-democracy movement who also happen to be Democrats, like they are relentless, they're well-resourced, and they won't stop. They really believe this stuff. Like you have to understand that. Like, they are true believers. And it's just like, you know, sitting in a, in a big campaign headquarters, Tim, and there's always like at the time, this is many years ago now, like there's always the social conservative guy, right? Gary, he's got the red tie on. He's got the gray suit on. He's got a little bit of that crazy look in his eye. And like nobody hangs out with Gary because like we know Gary needs us more than we need him because without us, he's got nothing. But the problem was, is that Gary was always really in charge and we ignored it. Yeah, Gary won. I had an insane person that I don't know why they still talk to me, but insane anti-immigrant person that I used to have a relationship with that read the book called me and was like, the bright thing that you got the most right about this book is like, you might have called all my people bigots and mouth breathers and stuff, but what you recognized is that we won. We won. The so-called professional establishment center right Republicans, they've lost. And that you guys, the Never Trumpers, this was a compliment of us, you guys, the Never Trumpers, are the only ones who realize it. All these other adults still think they're in charge. Mitch McConnell still thinks he's in charge. And they're lying to themselves because the nativists, the extremists have won. And this whole notion that, oh, John McCain and George Bush and these guys will put bumpers on their extremism was never realistic in the first place. And it was a total fuck up on all of our parts. And it's just mea culpa. Throw myself on the mercy of the court. All we can do now is try to atone for it and fight like we're doing. But you have to just be clear-eyed about what has happened. And, and I think as I had these conversations for the book, it just became more and more obvious about how dominant the extremists are now and how that we should have seen it. At minimum, I started the book in 08 because I did a This Is My Life book. I didn't want to do history like Stuart did. So I'm sure if Stuart was on the podcast, he'd say, actually, it goes back to 64. But it should have been at least as clear in 08. But, you know, at least now we can we can call it for what it is. You know, you think about it in 08, who was the alternative? Mike Huckabee, right? Should have been a red warning flag. It wasn't someone else like us, Tim. And then in 12, you had Gingrich and Santorum. Like, 
at least Huckabee had been governor of a state. Remember, there was video of him begging the Arkansas legislature to raise taxes, right? Like this was a guy who believed in governance at some point. But then it was Santorum and Gingrich, like Gingrich, who was the architect of so much of what you and I came up with from a strategic and tactical perspective on a campaign front, stuff that my dad helped engineer of all things, right? Think about that. But then it was Santorum, right? Like who had even less qualifications other than being a lib hunting ultra social conservative who was not a fiscal conservative, right? And I think that was the other part too, is like we didn't understand that like the whole idea was like it wasn't about policy. It was about grievance, ultimately about power now, I think. Just really quick on 2012, because this has been a realization I've had that I should have had at the time. I'm wrapping myself on the knuckles. Gingrich and Santorum together beat Mitt. Mitt probably would have lost a one-on-one, or had it been flipped, like let's say the final three were Santorum and Christie and Mitt. Like Santorum would have won, or Gingrich would have won. And so the writing was just so clearly on the wall, to, like, to your point about 08 and, and 12, obviously with Palin as well. That that completely debunks this notion that there's, I know we on this podcast know we're never going back, but just kind of looking at the math of those races just shows how clearly it is that there's no going back. Well, and so speaking of going back, so Tim, there's a guy who I've never heard of until I saw this tweet. Christopher Rufo wrote, the test for, quote, never Trump intellectuals is where they stand on DeSantis. That's Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. He should be their guy. Elite education, military background leadership experience, impeccable character. If they can't get behind him, the takeaway is clear. It's not about principles. They serve the left. And like to me, as someone like you who's been at this for many years now, and it's nonstop, as you know, like the fight never ends. It goes on 24-7. Like to me, it seems like there's a normalcy bias, which is it's Trumpism washed through the car wash, right? He's a Republican governor, successful, not named Donald Trump. Ergo, he's okay. But the problem is, Tim, the Overton window on what it means to be a normal Republican has moved significantly. Significantly. I mean, the people we call normal Republicans are, are what you call Joe Biden Democrats now. So, yeah, the window's moved a lot. So Chris Rufo is the anti-CRT guy. He's the guy that started the CRT panic. So he's Mr. N-word for the 2020s. Yeah, exactly. So that's an important context here. I think that Mr. N-Word has one thing right, which is that in the in what he would call the intellectual, I'm doing very heavy scare quotes here, class of never Trumpers. I think who he's really talking about is this like National Review crowd, the anti-antis, what we call them at the bulwark, the anti-anti-Trumpers. And I do think that he's right. DeSantis will be a test. And I think that a lot of the people who were against Trump because they just for legitimate reasons, because his personality had nothing to do. They didn't mind, you know, the Muslim ban, really. They didn't mind the Supreme Court takeover and the stolen seed and all this sort of stuff. What they didn't like was his personal characteristic flaws. And I do think all of those people will fall in line for DeSantis. And I think there's a number of people who were, quote unquote, never Trump or anti-anti-Trump, that it was just about Trump's personality that they didn't like. And those people will fall in line behind DeSantis. For the rest of us that fall on the other line, for me, his use of the word principle distorts what I see as principle. What I don't see as principle meaning I will only support candidates that believe that the top tax rate should not be higher than 32%, you know, and that, you know, regulations at the EPA must be cut and whatever. Like, that's not how I see principle right now in the fight we're in. ICS says we're in a fight for democracy. We're in the fight for, you know, this broad pro-democracy coalition against a nascent nationalist authoritarian coalition. I'm not even sure how nascent it is. Yeah, that's true. Growing, growing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Good correction. Growing national authoritarian coalition that is global, by the way. And the things that I'm prioritizing right now are not my disagreements on random policy items with people on the left. You know, we agree on some things, disagree on others. What are the priorities now is how can we protect and safeguard our democracy? How can we protect liberal democracy? How can we make sure that everyone, no matter your skin color, sexuality, gender orientation is protected and your rights are protected in this country? That is the dividing line for me on principle. And it's obvious if you look at the line that way that Ron DeSantis is not even close to acceptable. You know, what he's done in Florida with this don't ask, don't tell for teachers. You know, the uh, targeting gays, targeting trans, targeting people for their political beliefs, targeting companies for their political beliefs. I mean, DeSantis, to your point, has taken Trumpism through the car wash and all of 
those terrible elements of Trump, the anti-liberal values, small liberal values elements, DeSantis is fully lockstep with Trump and all that. And the other thing is, I'm not one of those, it's like, well, DeSantis is going to be worse than Trump. I, well, they're different. There are obviously some traits about Trump that are uniquely bad, his sociopathy, his shamelessness. But, you know, it's also worth noting, DeSantis actually outflanked Trump on vaccine conspiracies. He was even more conspiratorial than Trump. So, you know, if you look at it in those lines, it's very clear, you know, which side DeSantis falls on, where we are and where Chris Rufo and his anti-CRT moral fake racist craze, where he falls. But it's also, to your point, yes, I wish that we were in a place where we could have legitimate arguments about a 36.2% tax rate versus a 38.1, right? We're not there. But if you look at it, DeSantis and so many of these guys, Cotton, Cruz, Hawley, if J.D. Vance wins, and Trump's out or Trump's weakened, he'll run because he's not going to wait in line behind these other assholes. That it's all culture war all the time because the last thing in the world they want to talk about is anything that actually has residence in the real world other than stoking the heroin addiction that has been fed to so many tens of millions of Americans over the past, let's call it 30 or 40 years, the advent of talk radio and Fox News. Nobody wants to eat their vegetables. They'll be the salad bar offering on the debate stage. But the rest of them are going to be that way because, I mean, look, if you look at DeSantis, DeSantis does not want to talk about COVID because he don't want to talk about how many Floridians died. He doesn't want to talk about education because he doesn't want to talk about how kids have fallen behind, you know, because of COVID and everything else. He doesn't want to talk about the economy with the exception of blaming Joe Biden because he doesn't want to have to admit cost of living has risen further and faster in Florida than any state in the country. He can't defend those things, therefore go on the attack. The problem, as so often happens with our Democratic friends, Tim, is that they're more than happy to follow him down the culture war path, where then the Republican, who's good at this stuff, beats them over the head. Yeah, I guess my complaint with our Democratic friends is not necessarily they're willing to fight the culture war, because I think in some areas it needs to be fought, but the strategy isn't there. You know, it's like DeSantis picks his side. Say what you want about this guy. He's a bigot. He's an aspiring authoritarian. He's a Trumpist. He's not an idiot, and he's strategic, and he picks fights. You know, this don't say gay bill, for example, is a prime example. On its face, it seems like that can't be popular, but it has this long history, going back to the Briggs Initiative, scaring parents that their kids are getting corrupted by these groomer gay teachers or whatever, so it's deep-seated. And I think that while over the long term, you know, younger voters obviously turned off by this, if you look at the Florida demographics and the coalition, it's a winning short-term issue for him in Florida. It is. And so Democrats need to pick winning culture war issues to fight back against these fuckers. And this is the thing that bothers me. I called it don't ask, don't tell for teachers earlier. That is not popular. Telling teachers that they can't talk about their spouse, like that is not a winning issue. We fought this fight 12 years ago in the military, okay? That's a fight worth fighting. Look at guns. Nobody wants any kid in their kid's high school to be able to buy an AR-15. That is like an 8% issue by gun freaks. Like even half the Republican coalition doesn't want this, right? So conduct a campaign against these assholes that say, if you are under 20, if you're under 25, whatever it is, you cannot buy an AR-15. And you can imagine the ads that you could run scaring parents about these little fucks that are you know, buying AR-15s on the internet legally and then shooting up schools, right? So I do think that you can fight on the culture war stuff, but sometimes I, I do think that just the Democrats get wrapped up in okay, well, we're going to fight on what we really want. And this we come back to the purity test thing. And, and just for me, it's like, I don't want to tell you you shouldn't believe that or you shouldn't fight for it, but we need to be smart right now. And like, let's find these big winning culture war issues to fight back against those guys. And there's not a lot of evidence of Democrats doing that successfully. They kind of get caught up in appealing to voters that are already with them. Right. I want to turn to DeSantis as a candidate because clearly he and his team, again, I think we probably know a lot of the people around him, right? They see this guy as like the second coming. This is going to be the ticket to the White House. And they might be right. We don't know. But he's also not really tested yet, Tim. And like, we know what tested looks like. It's three or four day slog through Iowa, either in the blazing heat or the freezing cold. It's dealing with the flintiest of New Hampshireites, each of one who wants to take their measure of you and an expectation on their part that you will stand for it. You know, it's the colonoscopy of carrying a press corps that they're going to be up close and personal. It's the daily 
jousting with your opponents and oppo drops and all that other stuff. And then, frankly, this is the one thing that I have yet to see from the guy is like he can give a canned speech at CPAC. That's fine, right? Because you know that's like you're going to get the most faithful and the nuttiest. But like put him on a debate stage with eight other guys who have the same political ethos. They're not going to fall for the bully crap like everybody did in 1516 because they didn't know what to do with Trump. They're all that way now. They're all going to be knifing each other to get to be the most pure. And it hasn't shown that, like, in the fray, he's anything other than just one more guy who won his race in, in 18 by 30,000 votes. And he's got a supplicant bench. He's got a supplicant legislature. And everybody's running scared politically in Florida. Now you got to go and you got to actually, you know, join the big leagues. You, you know, he's in double A ball right now. Yeah. The one thing that he's shown skill at is manipulating the conservative media which is an important trait in a presidential campaign. So I think that is the, if I look at him and I try to see what are his strengths, that's the number one strength. He's demonstrated that he can do these stupid culture war games that get the mainstream media and the progressive media angry at him and get the conservative media to come to his defense. He's good at playing that game. Obviously, Trump is the master at that game. And so that's what he's got going for him. On a stage, though, it's just a completely different animal. And there's this big question about whether Trump wins or not, and you know we'll see. But if Trump is to run, as soon as you enter the primary against him, you become anti-Trump. And I just think this is another example of these guys and the establishment class that just want to get rid of Trump without getting their hands dirty. They want Trump to disappear, but they don't want to be the ones that stick the knife in him because they know that'd be the end of their career. They'd go the Liz Cheney route, God lover. And so they're like, man, could we possibly just get rid of him by just going with DeSantis? And then DeSantis seems so strong. Maybe Trump decides he won't run or, you know, whatever, that the DeSantis can get this momentum. The problem is that it's the same shit that we all lived through in 2015. It's like, what, are these guys kidding themselves? That doesn't work. Like, DeSantis can't get into this race and say, well, I love Mr. Trump. You know, do the Ted Cruz thing. I love Mr. Trump. I admire Mr. Trump. But I just think we want someone who's a little more conservative or whatever, a little more anti-vax. Like, like that isn't going to work. Like, once you get into a race with Trump, Trump starts, you know, accusing you of murdering JFK, right? Like, immediately you become anti-Trump, and now you're in this knife fight that you were talking about. So. I'm skeptical that he's capable of navigating that. You know, if Trump has a heart attack or jailed or whatever, and he's alone in the race, maybe it's a different animal. But as long as the specter of Trump is there, I think this is a person that's kidding himself, not someone who has the skills to navigate it. Well, and that's the other part. I mean, I've been fascinated for the last six weeks or so, Tim, with the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania, because I think it's shown a further striation of I'm going to call it the Republican Party. They're not conservatives. Where you mentioned Dave McCormick gets 31. Oz gets 31. Does not win but for Trump. But the 24% that Kathy Barnett got. Mm -hmm. Ultra MAGA. Ultra MAGA. She didn't run a campaign. She might win but for the fact that some pollster like three weeks out was like, holy shit, where did she come from? And then Fox, Hannity, both super PACs, everybody go in heavy and it blunts her just enough. But, Tim, if they had not caught her, if they'd given her another week, it might have been too late. And so I think McCormick is like the rump establishment, right? You know, he did the Bible verse thing, but nobody bought it. Everybody was in on the joke. You had Oz, who's the pure Trump charlatan. He's that part. But Barnett represents the ultra MAGA, which I think is becoming the norm. That's the Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Carrie Lake, the Doug Mastriano. The guy in Michigan who went from fifth to first just on the strength of having been arrested by the FBI for being at the Capitol on January 6th. And it's fundamentally, in my mind anyway, anti-democratic sentiment, a white Christian nationalism. And I think that the analog for their anti-democratic vision is the fact that they all oppose helping Ukraine. I don't remember who was on with Bannon, but remember it was like Putin's a guy like we should get behind. White nationalist. Yeah, there's a male bathroom and there's a female bathroom. Everybody knows who they are over there. Like Tucker does the same thing. Yeah, that was Eric Prince. That was that Eric Prince interview. Yeah. Eric Prince. Right. Yeah. Another another prince of a guy. And so there seems to be that ultra MAGA. So I guess my belief is, is that if and when Trump gets in, because he is so in tune with his people, that it, it seems to me that he would move to where the ultra MAGA is with the assumption that the other charlatan lovers, you know, people who love the show will come with him to put off any other sort of legitimate competition. I think that that's right. And I think that 
this notion of where Trump is going, that he's going more towards this sort of blend of the ultra mega on issues with Barnett, but having the Oz kind of appeal. Like the other thing with these ultra mega types like Barnett is they're a little weird, you know, and Trump's weird in his own way, but he also kind of has still has this Hollywood apprentice kind of vibe that he can cross over and he can kind of appeal to both in a way that a lot of imitators can't. But I just want to add one thing on how you mentioned Michigan and Pennsylvania and all these primaries. I think that there has just been a complete failure in the mainstream media. And obviously Fox is covering it up of calling out what is happening in these primaries. These primaries are insane, Reed. Like the primary debates in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, like it makes the Herman Cain, Michelle Bachman debates of 2008 or 2012 look like Lincoln Douglas. And these people are off when you say the Overton window and these people are off the damn deep end and the debates are all just like vaccine conspiracies and election conspiracies and we should not let people have abortion from the moment of fertilization and everybody should get a free AR-15. I, 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 you can't even describe how insane these debates are. And I think that there's been, I hate the word normalization, but there's been just this dulling because of Trump. Trump seems so crazy, it can't get any more crazy. It's gotten more crazy. Like the 2022 primary, Republican primary debates are more extreme than anything we've ever seen by, you know. Orders a, of magnitude. Yeah, orders of magnitude. Thank you. No, I think that's right. And is, I think it was Hugo Lowell of The Guardian, who I just recently had on. I think he, maybe he was talking about the Michigan debate. He's like, these people can't even speak the English language. They can't form a coherent sentence. Like, I'm not insulting their intelligence. It's like, the, remember when Rick Perry couldn't remember the third cabinet department he wanted to get rid of? These people can't remember the crazy they're supposed to crazy. And I think that's the other part, too, is that so many of these people, either they're truly that nuts, which is probably, let's call it two-thirds of them, or they're so cynical that they must double and triple down because any movement away from that, you know, shows weakness. Well, listen, I have kept you too long. Tim, before <laughs> we let you go, where can folks find you on social media and where can they find your writing? Writing at the Bulwark would love you. If you come to the Bulwark, we have so many great writers. We're adding new people. And it's been a really cool community of center, center left, you know, writing, reporting, opinion. I have a Snapchat show called Not My Party. If you have a teen in your life, it's 13 to 24-year-olds who watch it. I'm trying to provide a island of sanity for these teens who, who get either, you know, Charlie Kirk, Ben Shapiro, MAGA stuff in their feed or some pretty far left stuff that, you know, they're getting to from these YouTubers and the Twitch crowd. I'm trying to have a show for teens that has some political sanity to it. And then the book's why we did it. Get it at your local indie bookstore. Order on Amazon if you uh, don't have any problems with Jeff Bezos or uh, get it at your neighborhood store. Absolutely. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Tim, I want to thank you for joining me and everybody else. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.